Welcome uh, today to this event on uh, markups, uh, market power, and uh, implications for competition policy. Um, it is uh, the brother event of the one we had yesterday on empirical trends, uh, productivity and growth. Now we'll take a more microeconomic market approach. Uh, and we are very happy to start with uh, the presentation by Fiona Scott Morton, who is the Theodore Nierenberg uh, Professor of Economics at Yale University at the Management School. Uh, and then uh, it is great to have some panel discussion uh, on um, uh, issues related to competition policy and market power. Uh, and in alphabetical order, we have an economic consultant, Adina Kleisi, who is the director and head of the Brussels office at Copenhagen Economics, with long experience at the European Commission, the economist team. Uh, we have uh, Nicola Petit, a distinguished quest uh, academic, who recently spent uh, well, uh, uh, some time in the US, in Stanford. He is a professor of law at the University of Liège and also co-director of the Brussels uh, School of Competition, and uh, we are very happy to have with us also uh, Arno Razek, who is the chief economist of uh, German Competition Authority. Let me not try to say the name uh, German Cartel Office. Um, so, uh, and uh, without, um, we have uh, interesting insights, so we'll start with Fiona. Fiona, the floor is yours. markups in red and the green is dividends and uh, the, on the left and on the right is uh, stock prices uh, st stock prices uh, matched on top of the markup. So what you see, these pictures start in 1950 and what you see is it around the mid 80s in the United States, markups start rising and they rise from maybe 1.3 to up to close to 1.7. All right, now um, that's quite strong evidence, and uh, you can do this a variety of different ways. You can look at the data for Europe. Um, they all show a rising pattern. I think the, the uh, data for Europe are a little bit less strong than that for the U.S. Um, if you dig inside these numbers, uh, more high-tech uh, companies have more of a rising markup, and the action is at the top end. That is to say, the markup of the median firm hasn't really gone up, but the markup of the 90th percentile really has. Okay, so uh, one criticism that Halvarian makes of this markup work is that if you have a fixed output elasticity of labor, if that's not allowed to change over the 50 years, then what you're measuring ultimately is the change in the labor share. I don't, Hal presents that as if that's a big flaw in this research. I don't really see that that's a problem or even a rebuttal. 
Um, if inputs are, are switching to information technology or to the owners of the company away from labor, we still have the same set of macro problems that we had before. Less investment, less business dynamism, profits, but no expansion of business, widening income inequality, and so on. So um, because those dollars are not going to labor but and actually not going to the suppliers of financial capital either, but rather the owners of the equity, what this does is it, it continues to generate a desire to exclude, a desire to lobby, and so forth to maintain those monopoly profits. Okay, so the conclusion of this markup work is that markups are rising. As I said, other work comes to similar conclusions. And one the, the point that I am going to make in this talk today is that markups among competition people have a pejorative connotation. We're, we're against markups. But in fact, this is just price over marginal cost, and there's a lot of other costs, like fixed costs, for example. Uh, and so before we jump to a policy implication, we should think through what the reasons for the rising markups are and what, what we might interpret them uh, to, to, to mean. Okay, so a first explanation that you could have for rising markups is that fixed costs are a growing share of total cost. So imagine that I uh, used to have a lot of labor and a little bit of fixed cost. Now I have a computer, an enterprise resource planning system, something that's really quite expensive and is a share of fixed cost. If that's true, then uh, price, even if price is just equal to, to total cost, okay, average total cost, my price over marginal cost number is go going up, right, because fixed costs are going up. And if consumers want the attributes generated by those fixed costs, they want research into new treatments, they want a good app, they want a good web page, etc., then that's a good thing, and we'll generate this trend, and is that a welfare harm? Okay, now, is that a welfare harm is a little bit of a subtle question, because in a static model, price greater than marginal cost generates deadweight loss, we know that. But in a dynamic model, the firm is not going to run this business and be able to pay for the fixed costs unless it can cover them. So the consumer is not going to get this product if price equals marginal cost because there's no money to pay for the fixed costs. Consumers are likely better off in a dynamic sense with this product at uh, price greater than marginal cost than without it at all. Okay? So in a dynamic sense, this is going to be uh, probably not harmful for consumers. So the next thing we want to ask, is there a zero profit constraint? If we think there's dynamic gain and the firm is in expectation of earning zero profit, okay, then the gross margin on each unit is just going to cover the fixed costs. And if there's no excess profit, I think uh, most competition authorities would say, well, we don't have a competition problem here. This is a quality that's generated by fixed costs that consumers want. Firms are not making economic profit in expectation. Uh, so everything's fine. A little bit of a complexity here is that in expectation, firms may be making zero profit, and in reality, they may some of them may earn negative profit and some may earn positive profit. And that flow of profit might occur in some time periods and not others, and so looking at a snapshot in time might not quite get you the right answer. So measuring all of this is hard, but conceptually, I think it's, it's not complex. Okay. However... If, mar if fixed costs are a larger portion of total cost, you have a very clear implication for competition enforcement. And that is, higher fixed costs lead to more concentrated markets. This is a point uh, John Sutton made a number of years ago. I mean, it's an old, old point. But when we have higher fixed costs and more quality, or whether they're endogenous or exogenous, we're not going to have as many firms in the market. 
A more concentrated market means there's less competition in the market and therefore more competition for the market. Becoming one of those successful firms in the market is valuable. We're going to compete for the market. The locus of competition moves much more toward entry. Okay, if, if we think about the automobile market, everybody's in there competing with each other. The locus of competition is really in the market. If you think about a social media site where everybody wants to be on the same platform as everybody else, there's going to be one winner and there's going to be very vigorous competition to be that winner. But once you've got it, there's not much competition in the market anymore. So enforcers have to put a lot more weight on potential entry theories of harm, incipiency theories of harm, impacts of very small firms that have very small shares that might be disruptive, potential entrance from elsewhere in the vertical chain, maybe the really big competitive threat is not actually somebody who does the same thing as the firm in question, but a supplier or a downstream firm or a complement. Okay? These entrants are going to play a very large role in generating consumer welfare if they're the locus of competition. Okay. So is it only fixed costs? I'm going to, in the interest of time, skip this slide. Jan and Jan basically think it's not only fixed costs for the reasons that uh, stock prices are rising with those markups. So what is another explanation besides fixed costs? One could be globalization, falling tariffs, at least for the moment, uh, falling tariffs uh, and transport and contracting costs mean that you can operate in multiple countries and you can cost minimize. I can draw my input from the country with the lowest cost. I can engage in legal tax evasion. Uh, I can invest in a brand in country A and make my sneakers in country B. And that might generate higher markups for firms with a global reach. Okay? That's, I think, quite possible and quite consistent with the data showing that it's the highest uh, markup firms whose markup is rising. Um, another popular explanation is uh, that comes from the macro finance literature is that we've got an intangible asset. Okay, we're missing a factor of production, which is some kind of funky combination of top management skills, the brand, their unmeasured quality, their know-how. Okay, the thing about this is it's super convenient because you can't measure it, so you can use it to explain anything you want. Uh, and that's what's happening now. I would say it's not implausible that there's an interaction between skills, IP, and, and, and firm capabilities. So what this might be is a return to labor right at the top of the income distribution. The top 10 people in a company, for example, might be earning a lot, and this might be a return to intangible assets. If you believe you've measured it, you could explain a lot of macro patterns, but I don't know that we really know how, we're, how well we're, we're measuring this. So that's an explanation that's out there but un, needs more development. However, the macro finance people are very strong on taking these national accounting facts. The labor share is falling, capital share is falling, firms are profitable but they're not expanding, and demonstrating that the macro model cannot reconcile these things unless you have market power. A perfectly competitive model cannot make all of that fit together. Uh, you've got to have the share of rents rising. So it's not a return to capital, it's not a return to labor, it's a return that go, that's rents, that's some kind of profit. So what kind of rents uh, could there be that are eating up this national income? Okay, well there are some rents that create deadweight loss and are really bad. And we have a lot of these in the United States, you have not so many uh, in Europe. We have excessive occupational licensing, uh, 
the occupational licensing has gone from 15 to 30% of US workers. State legislatures do this. They get captured by some interest like interior decorators or dog massage people, and they pass. You know, you have to have 30 hours of training to be a dog massage person or some number of weeks of training to be an interior decorator. And a lot of these uh, requirements are not related to consumer welfare. Um, we have non-compete clauses for low-wage workers. These are starting to be driven away, but if you work at McDonald's, uh, you actually sign a non-compete saying that you will not go and work at another McDonald's. Okay, this really restricts uh, mobility and income growth for low-wage workers because they can't become an assistant manager at the next-door McDonald's. Uh, we have patent trolls. Uh, that's been a big upward trend in the last 30 years. Large portfolios of junk pat patents and repeatedly sue. Uh, we have a lot of regulatory capture. The Department of Transportation does a lot of worrying about how to increase airline profits. The FCC worries about how to increase cable profits. The states worry about how to increase car dealership profits. And they're not so focused on consumer welfare. Okay. However, there are uh, rents, I think, that are created by lack of competition enforcement in the United States. And this is what we're seeing is the full effect of the influence of the Chicago School of Thought, which started in the 70s and said we should enforce less. And for 40 years in the United States, we've been enforcing less, every year less than the year before. And if you enforce less for 40 years, eventually you overshoot. Uh, and I, my view is that's what's happened. And that these uh, kind of classic Chicago School ideas from the 1970s were wrong, are still wrong, have always been wrong. Um, but now we, are, we have the evidence, because after 40 years, you actually see changes in markets uh, to show that these are wrong. So monopolies are inherently transitory and will be overturned by innovative firms. Most mergers are fine. Everything vertical is fine. Oligopoly markets are contestable. Uh, coordinated effects are impossible. These are things that the literature, both on the theory side and the empirical side, has shown to be false. Okay. But uh, firms that have benefited by being, by being allowed to create and keep market power could be the ones at the top of the markup distribution. And this is a specifically American approach to competition enforcement and would account for our markups being higher than other countries' markups. So specific areas to worry about in competition enforcement, I would say uh, the dominant tech firms are, of course, a big area. And there we need some theories of harm. These are not well fleshed out at the present moment. Uh, merger under enforcement, there's a considerable uh, uh, accumulation of evidence that we need to tighten that up. Um, that evidence comes from uh, places like John Cuoco, who's got a book look, just looking back at merger retrospectives. But uh, two new papers by Thomas Woolman talking about uh, small mergers and showing that we have a real problem with mergers under our uh, reporting threshold being anti-competitive. And then potential competition, uh, a colleague of mine, Florian Ederer, has a paper showing that uh, pharmaceutical mergers um, result in competing projects that would result in a substitute uh, being killed off. Okay. So those are uh, some of the work that indicates we've had merger under enforcement. And then we have harmful unilateral conduct that could be challenged under current law in the United States and is not. And I organized an issue of the Yale Law Journal that came out last May that covers a lot of these cases, um, but which are, and I'll go into some detail in a minute, but I think these are uh, areas where we just haven't, we've chosen not to enforce in the United States despite economic uh, 
theory and evidence that, that would indicate we could. So what could we be doing? Uh, platform MFNs, here we've got uh, travel sites or payment cards where uh, the, the price parity clause uh, prevents rivals from cutting the fee for the platform. Uh, standard setting organizations and FRAND, the SSO goes out and creates a monopoly and then doesn't really enforce FRAND, and so uh, market power is exercised there on implementers. Loyalty rebates, where an incumbent actually taxes the sales of the rival. If the customer buys from the rival, that makes the uh, purchases from the incumbent more expensive. Horizontal shareholding, uh, here we need more work to understand this better, but there's a risk that large asset owners, mutual funds or sovereign wealth funds, own rivals in an oligopoly, and that's suppressing competition. Monopsony, large employers in a narrow geography or skill category are driving wages down. Um, exclusive contact, contracts and bundling, platforms uh, that have exclusive contracts are going to prevent app entry, search entry, operating system entry, and acquisition of potential competitors. And here again, the platform or any dominant firm buys up the potential rival, and that in a share sense doesn't do anything. Your HHI is barely moving but you may have a substantial effect on competition. And uh, so let me show you a difference between the United States and Europe on these fronts. So platform MFNs, we have not done any in the US as far as I uh, know. And in Europe, uh, you did the booking.com and other um, uh, Expedia cases. SSO Fran has been tackled in the EU under excessive pricing. Loyalty rebates uh, under Intel, exclusive in IT platforms, search and Android, both. Common ownership is under research. Uh, I think in the United States, we still don't have uh, an FTC study, for example, of common ownership. Monopsony, uh, nobody in the U.S. is doing anything about that, um, except the Attorney General in the state of Washington, who's the one going after the non-compete clauses in fast food restaurants. The institutions protecting labor in Europe are stronger, and this may not be as much of a problem in the United States. And then I think one for both of us to think about is this potential entrant uh, issue, the potential competitor. And if a dominant firm buy, tries to acquire a potential competitor, how do you show that that potential competitor is going to, it, it represents a, a, a serious, that that acquisition represents a serious lessening of competition when that competitor is not currently in the market, is not currently competing uh, against the acquiring firm. Uh, so the last uh, explanation for these rising markups that I wanted to touch on briefly is institutional malfeasance. Uh, malfeasance is a, a word we don't use very often, um, but I picked it on purpose because these behaviors are not illegal, but when they get on the front page of the newspaper, the firm in question usually stops doing them, okay? So it's that kind of behavior. Um, so, for example, in the United States, you can go to a hospital that is in network with your insurance company. That is to say, your insurance company says, yes, you may seek care at this hospital, and find yourself treated by an emergency physician who is not uh, in the network of your insurance company. Okay, and that's really an impossible thing to guard against because you're going to the hospital that the insurance company picked, and then you have a broken leg, and the doctor is not in network. And those, that's a purposeful strategy on the part of some physicians, and they bill three or four times as much as market rates and capture uh, consumers that way. And it happens sometimes with anesthesiologists and assistant surgeons. 
it's legal. Uh, I wrote a paper about this with uh, Zach Cooper. It was covered in the New York Times, and the next day the stock price of the company that specialized in doing this was down 25%, and senators wanted to hear from them, and generally things have gone very badly for that company since then. But we have others, dialysis providers. Dialysis providers donate to a nonprofit, take a tax deduction, and that nonprofit subsidizes insurance for people who need dialysis who then go in and use the company at a very high price. Okay. So you're really subsidizing people to get insurance that uh, pays high prices. Hedge funds, Katya Syme has a paper where uh, she shows that their hedge funds purchase TV stations strategically to withhold them from the FCC auction to generate a high price for the other TV, st TV stations they own. We have a problem with PBMs in the United States where they don't act as a good agent for the consumer and they essentially take a payment from the manufacturer to prevent consumers from moving to the generic or the cheaper drug. Uh, there's big problems in data now where we've got unsophisticated consumers and Facebook tells them that there's something's going to happen to their data and it's not, or the f mobile phone carriers in the United States who are selling location data without permission from consumers. So there's a lot of institutional malfeasance problems which are very, very profitable. So you could imagine that markups are being driven by that too. Okay, so this is all very depressing. Um, and I'm sorry it's very depressing. Five reasons why, well, four out of five are bad. Okay, but um, the, there's lots to do. Economics has a lot of useful answers. I think with these answers we can make some policy changes that lower these harmful markups uh, and in, increase social welfare. The good markup, the one that comes from fixed costs that consumers want, I don't think we need to worry about. Um, I would caution us all, though, that these markups are somebody's rents and those people are going to work really hard in the political system to keep their rents. So uh, don't imagine that this will be easy. Okay, that's an, I leave you with that, that depressing thought. Sorry about that. Okay, thank you. Um, it was a very interesting and insightful presentation uh, on why you observe what you observe, and uh, that is very valuable. Uh, however, in your presentation, we noticed many different explanations. And competition policy com under enforcement uh, that, uh, in which you referred is just one of them. Do you believe that, in general, uh, what you observe is a combined effect of all these reasons, or it are different candidates to explain it? You mean company by company? No, no, I mean uh, um, all these different uh, factors contributed yeah. uh, to arrive where so. we are. So it's I a combined so. effect. I of think all. so, yeah. Yeah. So, and uh, therefore, competition uh, policy and potential uh, um, uh, efforts to address uh, this problem uh, should not be by alone, but should be followed in, by other instruments, correct? I mean, if you're an omniscient social planner, then yes. I think the problem is people like me, or probably most of you, are not also involved in tariff policy and globalization policy and uh, law enforcement of... Uh, you know, doctors and competition policy. So I would say, I, I'm, I, I hesitate to agree with your statement because it a little bit makes the perfect the enemy of the good. I'm not going to sit back in my office and say, oh, no need to move on competition policy until someone else goes forward on globalization. No. I think it's low-hanging fruit. In particular, tax policy, wherever you put the taxes, creates a deadweight loss. So there, there's going to be legitimate fights over how you do tax policy. Moving from monopoly to competition 
generates more social surplus. It reduces deadweight loss. So there are no, there's just no argument against doing that, aside from the people who are losing their rents, okay? And their argument is, I would like the money, and that's not a great argument. So, uh, so it, it's free to do this in some sense. Most of economics involves a trade-off, but moving from not having competition to having competition is free. It's, it's beneficial. So I think we just get going on that right away. I see. And in competition policy motivated by the very nice graph who compared U.S. and EU enforcement, I noticed three areas in which uh, we haven't done so much, uh, common ownership, monopsony, and acquisitions. So do you think that that should be priority? I think it is. I mean, I know that the European Commission is studying common ownership. Um, monopsony, I have to say, I know much less about uh, because labor institutions matter a lot for that and your institutions that protect labor in Europe are much stronger than ours in the US. So it may just be less of a problem here. I, I um, don't know enough to really have a strong view on that. And then potential acquisitions I do think needs to be revisited by both jurisdictions because I think this is increasingly important in industries with strong network effects. In industries with strong ne network effects, the market structure you expect to see is 99% and a bunch of epsilons. Right? That's what you ought to get because there's a, everybody wants to be on the same telephone network or social media site or whatever. So those epsilons are all we've got in terms of competition and they need to be protected. Right? If, if, that, if, if you had 25, 25, 25, 25 and a bunch of epsilons, well, that would be different. Then you could think about competition among those four firms. But, but in a market with strong network externalities, you're not going to have that. Thank you, Fiona. Adina, I will turn to you, and I would like to ask you to give us your European perspective, uh, given your experience on this issue. Okay. Oh, sorry. Thank you very much, Georgios, and also for the invitation. It's a real honor to be commentator to Fiona and be part of this uh, distinguished panel. Uh, as agreed with uh, Georges, I will just give a few um, views on, on Europe. Uh, first of all, based on what I read and then based on what I think. So I would just like to start, I think the figures for Europe, at least uh, the metrics that were discussed by Jan and Jan, by Jan, and Jan in, uh, uh, for, for the US. So the figures for Europe, to me, seem look a bit less depressing, as you call them. And I would just like to quote from the presentation, the work that my beloved former chief economist Tommaso and some of my colleagues, Hans is also here, uh, have done for Europe. It looks like um, in Europe, the concentration has increased less. The inequality is less than in the US. Uh, the margins are, have increased less than the US. So um, it looks the situation is not as bad. Um, Tomas also, this is um, one thing in, in his research, some facts about um, these metrics, and he also linked this to the potential problems or, or uh, things to do about the merger enforcement. Um, I will talk about uh, less about this merger enforcement, just wanted to mention something that uh, Jorge Padilla also in a paper has um, discussed some arguments of Tomas, so they agreed that high mergers lead to higher effect, uh, sorry, high margins lead to higher price effects in mergers, so this is a um, pretty uh, straightforward economic argument, but uh, Jorge is also um, uh, raising attention or drawing the attention of, of uh, 
the other side that we should look at, at uh, efficiencies, we should look at other elements besides the margins, uh, one of them also being the diversion ratios, which we know is, is used in this UPP analysis. Now, diversion ratios works well in traditional industries, but um, just I'm, I think I'm getting closer to Fiona now. Looking at this um, industries where, where big tech companies uh, acquire startups, where is the diversion? There is potential competition there. There is no actual competition to measure the diversion. So, so what to do about those cases? And then I very much agree with you that we should think of new or, or more theories of harm focused on entry, what to do with this entrance, because these entrants, maybe they are not necessarily the epsilon in the same market. As you say, they, they, have, they bring complementarities. They bring maybe a, a bit of a different idea. And they will never be able to exploit those complementarities without the scale of the big acquirers. So this is one of the things that competition authorities should look at uh, at the same time. So that's what I read. And that's what I agree and or not agree with. Now, uh, my own take on Europe. So why are these differences, observed differences? One is obvious, you already mentioned. It looks like Europe has a tougher uh, competition enforcement, at least in antitrust, it's more clearly more tough. In mergers, uh, maybe they are more similar. So this may be an explanation for, for having less depressing uh, figures in Europe. But however, it's also true if we look at Europe that Europe has not produced the Google and Facebook uh, of this world. So is this a good thing? Okay, maybe we don't have the problem of big margins or big concentration in this high tech in Europe itself, but is this good? Uh, I think it's rather not good because Europe is obviously much, much less digital than, than the world. Um, the rest of the world and the European Commission has acknowledged this in this digital single market. Uh, I'll quote something that I said in a previous event here uh, because I don't think the European Commission published anything else on platforms ever since two years ago. There was a, a communication on platforms showing that out of the um, many platforms studied, uh, only 15% in numbers and 4% in market values come from Europe. So the rest coming from the US and, and from Asia. So this is, this is very little. Um, yeah, Europe is not producing this big tech um, and big tech companies. And this worries European community. This worries um, politicians. Uh, there is, well, you know, I mean, we've read that Macron and Merkel is, they are advocating for an industrial policy that should uh, be more protectionist, that should produce some European champions that are competitive on, on, uh, on worldwide <coughs> level. But uh, is this, is this, is a, a more lenient competition policy the solution for this, for uh, allowing European champi champions to emerge? Our Commissioner Vestager doesn't, she, she keeps tough. Um, I read recently in The Economist, and I very much agree with this argument that there may be other ill, uh, Ill <laughs> sicknesses in, in Europe that maybe they are not as easy uh, as easy and immediately tackled, but they are there. And one of them is the fragmentation of markets in Europe, uh, fragmentation of 
capital markets, fragmentation of labor markets, and not least fragmentation of competition policy enforcement. Um, I know that you, I was also involved and, and uh, in my times as the Commission, EU is trying to harmonize the competition enforcement uh, across the member state, but um, there is a lot of uh, tradition and a lot, uh, it's, this thing doesn't uh, happen immediately and, and so straightforward. So because companies or digital companies that emerge in one member state in Europe may be sanctioned by or, or scrutinized by very different competition policies uh, around Europe. They may not be able to gain scale, they may not, not be able to grow beyond the national borders and that may be something uh, Europe can think about, so this fragmentation in terms of competition policy. Thank you. For now, I'm happy to... Thank you very much, uh, uh, Adina. Um, we move now to Nicola. Um, Fiona mentioned about the dominant tech firms and uh, that the fact that we need new theory of harms. We had many controversial cases uh, where um, uh, potential theories of harms were discussed. Um, as an expert in high tech market, how do you see competition evolving there? Do we have a problem? Okay, so um, yeah, I, I want to talk you know, briefly about the sort of poster child of the economy's monopoly problem uh, as we hear often in the US, uh, so that's big tech or, or fangs, so you know, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. And so increasingly in the public opinion, in the press, you know, in, 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 in agencies' uh, declarations, we hear that, you know, the fangs are monopolists, they are each on the core market, in which they have no competitors, they're dominance, and they are, you know, sort of stifling competition everywhere around them. Now, um, uh, the fangs sort of, you know, raise really two really hard questions for policymakers. The first question is, can there be competition without competitors? Uh, so they seem to say, you know, Google often comes with this line, you know, competition's one click away and so on and so forth. And the second question, if there's unseen competition in tech, uh, how to measure it? And so I play a little with those ideas in a forthcoming book. Uh, I actually should not have in accepted that invitation because I really wanted to work on my book. But uh, at the time, when you sent the invitation, I thought I would be finished, uh, overestimating my efficiency. Now, competition without competitors is, it's not a new idea. Uh, Schumpeter in 1946 referred to that. Uh, you know, he talked of the businessman feeling himself to be in a competitive situation, even though he's alone in his field. And you know, um, this statement from Schumpeter has actually two uh, interesting prongs. Now he talks about competition felt, not competition seen in market positions. And he also talks about a sort of construct validity problem, which is that uh, agency and policymakers, because they have certain models, you know, of thinking about competition, they don't really capture that competition felt, that competitive pressure. Right. So the idea of Schumpeter did not really carry the day because you know it's Schumpeter, right? So um, he said very bold things on innovation, and hence you know a lot of stuff that he said about competition has not really um, uh, um, been uh, uh, you know taken on board in, in policymaking, but. Uh, interestingly, a bunch of other economists independently from Schumpeter and very, very expert ones uh, have talked about that as well. So if you go to you know, uh, John Hicks, he talked about subjective factors relevant to firm behavior. He talked about discrepancies at firm level, uh, including you know, within firms holding a monopoly position between snatchers, snatchers and stickers. And Leibenstein as well talked about um, the necessity for conscient policy to assess the degree of effort, uh, so it talks, of, of firms despite or in spite of the existence of monopoly positions. So if you piece all those uh, 
um, declarations and statements and research from seasoned economists together, there might be some sense in which you can try to build beyond observation of structural monopoly position or markups and so on and so forth, an assessment of competitive pressure at uh, firm level competition felt. Now, um, to do, so I, I play a lot with this idea and so I formulate the following hypothesis. Um, if there is indeed a competition that we do not see because we just see structural monopoly uh, positions, maybe the people that are expert but outside of the competition epistemology find less monopoly when they observe things. So what I do is I try to sort of use data and collate data from other contexts. So the firm, uh, so the 10Ks of the FANG firms, um, and, but, but foremost and, and more importantly, uh, data from 17 financial data providers. There's a list there. And when they talk, they talk a lot about competition those people. You know, they do industry analysis, they do uh, top five competitors uh, analysis, and so on and so forth. And so you can find a lot of interesting stuff in the way those people talk about competition. So when they look at FANGs, uh, really, what they tend to tell you is that actually those firms are, are, you know, to some extent, some of them at least are competitors to each other. Um, and so you can, what you can see on the slide is basically a sort of you know, radar. So on the left-hand side, you see Google. So Google takes on a lot of commission from Microsoft, Facebook, and Amazon takes very little commission from Netflix, right? So if you look at Apple, you know, those people would tend to say Apple takes a ton of commission from Microsoft, but you know, much less so from, uh, say, Facebook and, and Netflix, right? And so you can, you can actually you know, come up with those radars of, of competitive intensity, competitive pressure, if you look at, at that data. So you have a sort of four-dimensional competition across industries and across all markets that those firms and those industry analysts tend to report about. Now, in my analysis, I find a lot of discrepancy at firm level. So I'm not saying here that none of, those, none of these firms is a monopolist. But what I want to su suggest is that those firms denote variation in terms of various parameters that they are listed on the slide. So some of them are very widespread conglomerates, others are more thin conglomerates. Some are subject to a lot of uncertainty in the market. You can you know, read a lot of uncertainty in the way they talk about function, others much less. Some are very R&D intensive firms, others are much less R&D intensive. Some firms are very serendipitous in their approach to product launch or innovation. So they tinker with you know, new products, they phase them out, they tinker again, they fade them out. They have research labs which do not have a sort of you know, outcome-driven R&D uh, purpose. They, sort of, you know, they play, they experiment a lot, right? So that's what I see in my, in my early analysis, okay? So I'll jump on that. So then question, of course, if, if there's indeed unseen competition that we do not quite capture with structural analysis. And when I talk about structural analysis, I talk about you know, all the all the gang of instruments that we traditionally use in, in structural analysis, so that's concentration ratios, learner index, uh, um, and, and you know things like you know markups and so on and so forth. So maybe how do we, how can we, can we measure that? So one idea that I try to explore is whether we can move beyond products markets to capture the four-dimensional competition that those firms uh, uh, report they're they're involved into, and you know we could look at a bunch of things. And in the interest of time, I'll you know jump fast on that. And actually, I have a paper, so you know people interested with the analysis, they can always go to the paper. I actually write better than I talk, uh, so 
Um, we'll post it on the event page. That's good. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, one way to think about how do we measure that four-dimensional competition is you really do we ask the right question. So you may remember that a few months ago, Mark Zuckerberg went to the Senate, and on the Senate floor, he had this uh, interaction with, with a member of the U.S. Senate who said, you know, well, you know, if I'm not happy with Ford, I can buy a Chevy. But if I'm not happy with Facebook, where do I go, right? And that was sort of, you know, very, very, you know, clever question and, you know, interesting, interesting intuition because, you know, you think, well, indeed, you know, where do I go? So, you know, someone much younger than me would say I go to Instagram because Facebook really sucks. But, you know, uh, a lot of people are stuck in Facebook and they have no alternative. They feel there's a monopoly, right? Now, you know that Instagram belongs to Facebook. I know, I know, I know, of course. But, <laughs> all right, of course I know that. But so, but that's ex exactly where I want to go. So what matters is not whether there's a single supplier or there's not a single supplier. What matters is not whether Facebook today, Facebook today is a single supplier. What matters is, you know, across time, whether Facebook as a single supplier has been subject to a lot of change in its business behavior, in its organization, in its investments, and so on and so forth. And actually, Instagram may be a driver of change within the company. Now, what's interesting is that um, you know, again, those economists, you know, they talk, they've talked about that, they've said competition and adversity creates pressure for change, and maybe we should think about trying to measure to what extent firm, over time, has, um, uh, how would you say that, uh, whether they, they really, you know, try hard to change even though they have this sort of observed monopoly position. So we need to capture the degree and rate of firm change over time. Did it change in one or more dimension? Uh, can we see rising outputs? That's what we see with Instagram, actually. A lot of output, you know, output has just gone like that. And, you know, if you think about monopoly, a monopolist takes from society, doesn't add to society. Um, do, we see, do we see change in cost structures? Do we see change in R&D? Do we see change in capital allocation choices? Do we see change in strategy? Do we see change in compensation? And again, not all firms change in a competitive way. Right? So if you think about capital allocation choices, for instance, a firm that you know, moves from retained earnings to a lot of buybacks may not be a very pro-competitive change. So that's what I wanted to say. So to close, just one thing. You know, one way to think about it is to think about the things that's digital Westeros, right? the Game of Thrones family. Some of them are really cool. Some of them are really uncool. Um, the question is, who's Apple? Who's Amazon? Who's Microsoft? Uh, my hunch, uh, you know, Amazon is a Targaryen. Right? And, uh, you know, it's all in my paper, so you can get there if you want to know more about Game of Thrones and fan competition. All right. Thank you very much, Nicola. Uh, let's... Uh, let's move further with Arno. So, um, to see their forces view, uh, active enforcement, uh, to talk uh, about uh, German view, which has been quite influential in enforcing competition policy market power. Commissioner Versteiger has said that uh, you move by innovating uh, the way enforcement uh, moves forward. So happy to hear your views on market power and enforcement. Okay, thanks a lot, Georgios, uh, for, for the invitation to speak at this uh, distinguished uh, event and to, to comment on uh, Fiona's presentation. I, I copied the title of the uh, panel uh, to, to the first slide, and uh, when I read it, uh, I, I was, uh, uh, it struck me that well, how, how can this be the title uh, of, of, a, uh, of a panel? Because uh, market power and its implications to competition policy, um, competition policy uh, is not 
in, is nothing else but uh, about market power. So uh, to me, it seems like to be a, a, a redefinition in itself. Uh, so, so I think more precisely what we're talking about is increasing market power and its implications uh, to competition policy. But more important on the first slide is uh, um, the disclaimer that uh, I always have to make, but I, I think on this topic here, it is uh, especially important that I speak on my own capacity only. Um, so I will uh, not uh, sort of uh, rediscuss uh, the, the, the macro trends and all the um, uh, theoretical and empirical evidence that uh, Fiona listed. Uh, um, I, I will talk only on, on the uh, implications to competition law enforcement and policy. And uh, when I do so, it, I think it's helpful uh, to have in mind that there can be implications on, on, on three different levels. So, so on one level, there's the direct impact on enforcement cases. Then uh, a second level is uh, uh, the, the agency policy, normally as uh, formulated in agency guidelines, and whether the, the things that we uh, observed, as laid out by Fiona, uh, um, whether that should trigger us to, to change agency policy and, and guidelines, and even one level up uh, then is a potential need for competition law changes. And uh, I think this uh, often with the under-over-enforcement discussion uh, becomes a bit blurred, and I, I think you uh, should sort uh, the, these arguments in where, where these belong. And I, I restrain myself to, to four. Uh, propositions. Uh, why have I selected those four? Um, I think, on the one hand, I think these are the four uh, topics or, or the, uh, the four implications uh, that matter most uh, for, for real-world uh, practice. And the second one is, I think, that those four uh, are, are probably uh, uh, those which maybe they, they are already becoming uh, common sense, but uh, I, I, at least I think uh, they, they, they should become. Um, so here's my first proposition, and it's pretty straightforward. Uh, more market power uh, should and will lead to, to more agency actions. And uh, um, the argument is very simple. So the, the, the legal uh, system that we have, the prohibition of abuse, uh, that hinges on uh, dominance. And if we have more market powers so or we have more dominant players, then, of course, um, if, if the agency policy and the legal framework remains unchanged, then we will see more abuse cases. And the same is true for, for merger control. In merger control, we have this sliding uh, uh, scale uh, of uh, intervention threshold, and the higher the market power is pre-merger, uh, um, the lower is uh, the increment, that uh, market power increment that agencies uh, are willing to accept. And that means that uh, uh, we will see more merger prohibitions. And my point here is that this is not any policy change. It is something that sort of if the, the policy remains unchanged and the law remains unchanged is sort of an automatic consequence. Uh, and uh, maybe also to shadow the, the uh, depressing uh, view of Fiona a bit, that will also mean that if you see market power rise over time, there's also some limit to that. So uh, 
we would not necessarily expect to, uh, to have that continue further increase of market power because if there's a stopping line where agencies say, well, there's only four players left in the market and no further mergers, then, uh, um, then in the future there would be no further uh, uh, market power increase through mergers. And um, I think if you go back to, to the market power level, then it's, it's uh, uh, straightforward and simple. There was some uh, uh, discussion. Um, uh, I was just asked before uh, uh, the event uh, what I thought of that uh, between um, the, the uh, Zenger Valletti paper, uh, Jorge Padilla, and also the, uh, from, from Greg Warren and Luke Ferb, uh, where sort of they went down to what that what does increasing margins mean for uh, merger control? And yeah, you can always make some specific situations where uh, not necessarily higher margins will lead more likely to, to, to uh, prohibition. But the big picture is higher profits, higher margins, and the same is true for higher concentration. These are indicators of, of market power, rather reliable not always a straightforward relationship, but uh, so if you see these indicators on the rise, then uh, uh, you, you, you will uh, likely see more prohibitions and more agency actions. So um, the only policy implication direct from, from this point that I can see there is that if you have need, more need for agency action, then of course uh, you would also have to step up agency resources is my second proposition, and uh, I think that ties well in what Fiona and Alina uh, have said. Um, I think it's now common sense that, uh, at least now common sense, that um, mergers and abusive practices or market power can affect not only prices but also quantities, qualities, variety, innovation, both short-term and long-term. and. Um, I think this hasn't ever really been disputed on, on an academic level, and uh, we always had that also in agency guidelines, textbooks, uh, and so on. But still, um, agency enforcement internationally sometimes uh, was very focused on, on short-term uh, short uh, price effects, uh, more in some jurisdictions than, than others. Um, but if you see the, the more recent case practices, for example, I, I, I made here two examples on the slides. Um, um, the USDOJ has sued a merger only on, on lessening of innovation uh, grounds, uh, or the UCMA, I think both cases are from 2015 or 16, uh, um, on, on a, a quality uh, reduction of a merger. Um, so this is also been becoming more real uh, case uh, practice, and uh, from a German perspective, uh, it's a very welcome uh, development. Uh, we, as Bundeskartellamt, uh, we always held that well, competition is much more than just prices, and it's not only short term. So, so uh, we welcome that. So. What will this mean for, for, for policy or interventions? Um, 
you can make up cases where this broader perspective actually leads to less enforcement, but in the majority of cases, this uh, will lead to, to more enforcement. Uh, third proposition is, um, and that's uh, sort of the most controversial uh, part probably um, on, on the whole uh, debate, uh, should agencies lower their uh, inter intervention threshold? And um, uh, on the empirical evidence, I think it is uh, very difficult to make a general uh, empirical proof of over or under enforcement. You, you can always can collect uh, uh, pieces of evidence and, uh, for example, the COCA study with the remedies, that's, of course, a strong uh, piece of evidence, but um, to, to get to the general picture, it's uh, uh, quite uh, difficult. Um, but uh, what, what is my observation is that uh, it uh, the sort of the, the discussion um, on and that after all I think goes back down to beliefs of of, of the people uh, in conferences like this one today. Um, this has changed very much if compared to last uh, decade. And uh, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, uh, you would hear many voices uh, complaining about over-enforcement. And today, you have it uh, the other way uh, around. And uh, so, so these uh, uh, voices have uh, changed a lot. And um, so to me, my, my personal view is uh, you do not really need to go the next step and sort of lowering uh, the, the thresholds and agency guidelines or even legal uh, thresholds, but a natural step would be to fully enforce uh, the, the existing intervention thresholds as they are written in, in the guidelines. And uh, my impression is that this happens uh, more and uh, overall uh, around the world, agencies seem to have become stricter de facto without any declared policy change, uh, just what, what they did in, in, in cases and uh, one, probably one example where this is quite obvious from the, the case numbers is uh, uh, the European Commission where after 2004 when these court cases were lost, uh, there was a strong decline of uh, prohibitions and, and remedies and uh, this has uh, been picking up quite strongly, and maybe one more anecdotal piece uh, that I can report is that uh, 10 years ago, we had many parties, they tried to uh, evade German merger control, so they uh, made requests for a referral to the European Commission, or they structured their mergers so that it was uh, fileable uh, there. We, we don't see that uh, anymore, so uh, we, we have now often uh, uh, parties uh, that request that the merger is referred from the European Commission to uh, the Bundeskartellamt. So uh, I think uh, we, we internationally in on, on one level. And fourth uh, proposition is um, if you do disagree with uh, sort of the, the macro evidence uh, that Fiona uh, presented or uh, if you disagree with the different uh, explanations uh, uh, that, that uh, um, Fiona presented, I think what is 
obvious and common sense is that for the, the, the platforms, uh, uh, the big uh, tech monopolies which are emerging or uh, have been emerging, uh, it's, it's obvious there, that there's a lot market power uh, there and um, with the characteristics of the digital economy, that is uh, network effects being direct or indirect, uh, strong economies of scale, we'll see that more in the future and we have been seeing more of that. Um, that, uh, yeah, we, we cannot uh, as competition authorities just uh, uh, do, don't do anything about it. Uh, and um, one observation there is that uh, merger control becomes less uh, suitable and, and less effective um, because much of this is organic uh, growth uh, to, to become a dominant player. And uh, cases like uh, Facebook, WhatsApp, or Facebook, Instagram, uh, yeah, at that time, the authorities uh, believed, well, the merger won't be a problem today they seem to think different uh, about, about it and uh, probably would, would take the decision uh, otherwise if they knew how the, the uh, had known how the development was uh, in the years afterwards. And uh, Jean Tirol in his uh, recent book makes an uh, interesting analogy with telecom uh, uh, markets uh, where uh, he basically said, well, we had these telecom networks, these were all monopolies, these were incontestable, and uh, basically we, we solved uh, the problem with uh, sector-specific uh, regulation, so to ensure interoperability between uh, players and uh, what he suggests is probably with uh, these new networks, uh, we, we would have to do the same thing. And that's an open question whether a competition law uh, will be sufficient uh, to do something like in the telecom sector, also for this uh, new uh, um, um, market. Um, but uh, I think the, the competition agencies uh, should try at least. Thanks a lot. Uh, thank you, Arno. I think uh, we have. I think we have um, a lot of uh, proposals, ideas, theories on the table. So uh, I want to go uh, to one round of comments uh, on discussion. So we have heard uh, about um, uh, the depressing view, uh, the <laughs> empirical uh, findings, but also uh, areas on competition uh, policy which uh, we could uh, contribute more. Then we had uh, the European perspective on uh, specific issues that they are uh, of interest uh, to move forward. We had the oligopoly theory, which basically says, you know, even we have market power in uh, digital firms, we may have first competition and we should take this into account. And then we had uh, some uh, very interesting for discussion propositions uh, coming uh, forward. So let's go to comments. Fiona. <laughs> Um, I wanted to make just uh, two comments about Nicola's uh, points. First of all, um, I really don't like the idea of having unobserved competition that firms can announce they're engaging in so that they're allowed to merge or not be uh, subject to the antitrust laws. Well, I have a big market share. I have high markup. There's no entrance in my industry, but don't worry, I'm really competing hard, and I understand that that's an unobserved thing and you can't measure it, so you're just gonna have to take my word for it. Okay, that strikes me as a not very practical way to do competition enforcement. 
Um, and then another thing that I think is coming out of the behavioral literature and the uh, more computer science side literature is uh, an evaluation of the output increases. So you can say, well, Facebook is increasing the number of clicks and this is output. And in a traditional industry like shoes, for example, more output is, is increases welfare, and that makes sense. But if you thought about an industry like cigarettes or mortgages, okay, you have what I would call a political equilibrium where we've decided how much of that output is good and we've made a rule. So cigarettes may not be purchased by people under a certain age. So more output of cigarettes is good because the people who are buying them are allowed to buy them and we're not having nine-year-olds buying cigarettes. Mortgages, similarly. A mortgage is, of course, a really good thing for someone who is suited for it. If you take out a mortgage that's appropriate to your income and your situation, then that helps you own a house, and that's fantastic. And we have rules about who's allowed to have a mortgage, so a big balloon mortgage cannot be given to a graduate student with no money uh, and, or, an, or a low-income person. So in that world, more output is better, and that's what we're used to thinking of. But suppose that we have a digital economy that has grown without any regulation. You have some in this continent, but we don't have any. Then it becomes not so clear that more clicks is always better. So suppose that those more clicks lead to addiction. Suppose that those more clicks are exploitative. Um, a phone can read your eye movements now. Uh, the Android phone is looking at your email. It knows when you broke up with your boyfriend. And depressed teenagers buy more makeup, for example. If you click on the suggested video in YouTube and you start with diet videos, you end up at anorexia. Okay, it is not clear that more output is actually welfare enhancing. So I think we cannot look at clicks and, and oh, there's more ads, there's more, there's more engagement, and call that uh, consumer welfare. We're going to have to go back to the drawing board and, and think about wh what of those things actually does count as uh, welfare-enhancing output increases and what of those things is just addiction or exploitation or something that uh, we really don't want consumers to be doing. So I, I just that's just a caution. Normally, you know, in this world, greater output is always greater surplus, and and I think uh, in the di online digital area, we we just can't make that assumption. Nicola, you want to? Yes. Come? Yeah. Yes. So uh, just for the first comment, I wanted to you know uh, recall a little anecdotes. So this is a story about two young fishes. They are swimming in the water. And you know, as they swim along, they, they meet the old fish. And so the old fish crosses their, their pass on the water and looks at them and says, hey, fellas, how the water? So the two young fishes you know, swim along for a minute, and then one looks at the other and says, what's water? Mm -hmm. right. And this is the idea behind an observed competition. I'm not saying that there's assumption that we can observe that, that we should count that sort of you know, mystical belief. I'm just saying that if we have indeed, and we can't, we have to be humble, right, with our tools. That's what the literature on macro today tells us to, you know, Iowa scholars. You know, guys, you maybe have missed something. We have to be humble, and we have to think about our tools and whether they are providing the right metrics, measurements, and diagnosis in conscient policy. So that's the idea about an observed competition. The second thing I want to say about the second remark, that we, I, as much as I think that indeed, you know, not all output increases welfare enhancing. I think we cannot just say that output increase in digital is 
doubtful in terms of its you know, social welfare, increasing poverty. And so what I want to say here about Facebook, for instance. So recall the, um, the big dip on the markets, right? Facebook took a big hit in quarter two or quarter three, right? And you know, everyone was talking about it, you know, looking at the share value that was sort of destroyed just in a day, right, on Facebook. So what happened there? You know, if you got to look at the data, what did Facebook do? And why did it report you know, such a loss on the market? Why did it take such a hit on the market? Well, Facebook basically announced that its costs of, it's the cost of investments in cybersecurity, privacy, and security had increased by 50%, right? And so that generates you know, increases in investments, increases in potentially you know, socially welfare improving improvements on, on the platform. And I, so, you know, I don't really think that you know, there's an increase in output should be sort of degraded on the sort of you know, loose notion that in digital, everything is doubtful. Um, second thing I want to say is when Facebook bought Instagram, Instagram was a very poor company which was not able to scale. Right? So look at it, you know, the sort of numbers that we see that you know, due to maybe its proximity to experts in the field, you know, people who know better at Facebook investments and so on and so forth, the platform has scaled dramatically and provided you know, good stuff for, for people. I mean, I'm, I just don't want to sort of you know, run under the, assumption, the other assumption, which would be we need to be very careful with those improvements in outputs. That's it. Thank you, Nicola. Um... On this side of the table, Adina, any comments uh, before going to the questions? Well, just to compliment Fiona, I mean, you know I've been looking a lot into big data and I think you're right that um, we have to be careful. It's scary what uh, big tech companies are doing with our data because we don't know everything that is collected from us in every single second. But, and that's why I think there is a lot of work for economists and for behavioral economics experiments. There are already some, some people writing on it, how much people, both things, how much people value their data, their, their privacy, and also how much they value the services that Google and Facebook are delivered. There are all these kind of experiments. Would you give up an ice cream or five minutes without Facebook? So if you are uh, somewhere in a remote island. So I think, uh, yeah, I wish I had more time, but I think researchers can do lots of interesting things to measure both sides and then see who is gaining, who has bargaining power, and how much Google should pay people for this data, I think. Do we have access to data to do that? Uh, good question. Experiments. Yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, you know, the 10K is also, you know, Google, re uh, sorry, Facebook reports uh, every quarter and every year on the revenue it makes per user in America, in Europe, you know, through the use of personal data. So, and there you can sort of, you know, see actually large discrepancies between, you know, the Chinese market where Chinese people, you know, do not care as much for privacy or, you know, maybe Europeans. And the metrics are very different across markets. So, yeah. that tells a lot of about, you know, people's preferences with regards to privacy or institutional frameworks. Do you think the Chinese uh, number is about their preferences? Yeah, I don't know. Actually, they are not, you know, as big. But if you look at Europe and US, there's a large difference in the revenue per user from the platform. I've heard this before. I think OECD already has a four or five, has proposed a few metrics on how to measure the value per user, but or market capitalization per user. But these things depend on so many other things Factors. in the market, including market power. And so I don't think they are very reliable. I think these experiments 
could tell a bit more about people there, but also people themselves, they are not yet able to, to value this, to give meaningful. So wisely designed experiments can help in this. And if I may, just one question to Arno, because it's very true, all, all your proposals are very nice, but it has been discussed a lot that competition, also DigiComp is struggling with criticism. Why did you prove uh, Facebook WhatsApp uh, UK? Why did you, they are doing now ex post evaluation of Facebook Instagram. Why did you do this? They said that's the best we could do <laughs> given the standards. We are accountable in courts. There is no evidence about this potential competition, future competition. There is, that's why internal documents are very important, but if you don't find it in internal documents, otherwise, yeah, they are I think that's the struggle. I, maybe you can confirm because I don't think you mentioned, but that's the struggle you have. Because in theory, we all uh, read things, and it's, uh, but then in practice, you go to court, and what do you prove? Is this a big problem currently? Maybe is there something to do there? I I'm quite uh, skeptical about um, what what you can do in practice uh, with that because of all, all the court uh, uh, things because it's it just it's quite uh, far away and uh, it's it's hard uh, to predict and so if you have these smoking guns like in in the Dow Dupont merger or so where where you find some document it says oh, uh, we we will cut down innovation after merger then it's easy yeah. Uh, but um, normally you, you won't find that, and uh, so, yeah, I, I think uh, it, it, is, it is difficult. Um, it is, uh, so, in basically, uh, the only jurisdiction which uh, uh, covers it fully, these uh, potential uh, acquisitions of a potential uh, competitor is uh, the UK uh, regime. Uh, and uh, so in Germany, for example, we had this legislative change uh, uh, where a transaction value threshold was introduced uh, to cover uh, acquisitions of potential competitors if these potential competitors' market value is more than five, 400 million euros. So it's, it must be a, a, a high potential uh, a firm. But still, on the acquirer side, you need 500 million actual turnover. And we just now have a merger. It is much discussed uh, uh, in, in the press. Uh, um, I don't know um, from, from the press information. It, it uh, sounds to me like uh, um, they, they will not meet the merger threshold. So I, I, I really don't know whether it will, it, it will be a fileable uh, merger, but uh, if you if you believe what in in, in the press uh, said, then basically the case is that the two uh, delivering um, uh, food delivering services, uh, big ones in Germany, they they are valued more than one billion euros each of them, but none of them has 500 million turnover, so you you it wouldn't be covered then with the uh, filing thresholds. And then you can readapt our filing thresholds and so on. So um, it, is, it is very difficult. But um, one comment on, on the conversation between Nicolas and Fiona. Uh, um, I'm not so sure uh, with your example on, um, I think it was Microsoft investing in, in cybersecurity or so on, or, uh, um, or Facebook. Um, I think it's a wrong discussion to say, 
to discuss about is Facebook or is Google or is Microsoft good or bad? Is it good for the economy or bad? Or, or as you said, that um, you would normally think of a monopoly as taking some, something from uh, a society. And that's not the point. In monopolies are always better than not having a product service at all in the first uh, place, or normally are, because some otherwise people wouldn't buy that. And I think the discussion should be is, uh, is it better to have competition in the market or a mon monopoly and not about having it at all, or is it good or bad, and so on. And so, so to go back to the Tirol uh, analogy, uh, of course it's good to have telephones and uh, 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 telecom markets, uh, but it's even better to have uh, uh, many telecom providers that are interoperable and, are, uh, and, and work together uh, uh, from the consumer's point of view than having a monopoly uh, uh, provider. And I, I think anything else to, to, to talk about how much Facebook or whoever has invested in cybersecurity, that is more a, a distraction of, of, of the competition angle. Thank you, I'm sure that uh, there, should, there will be some response, but I suggest to open also the floor for discussions and we answer collectively. So, uh, please identify yourself and feel free to ask. Yes, there is there one question. <coughs> Hi, uh, I'm Jana Zdziewska from the European Parliament. I'm a trade analyst. So um, actually, I was very interested to see the, the analysis about uh, partially market power rising due to globalization. So on one hand, you said we should go after, as uh, Fiona mentioned, that we should go after uh, globalization uh, in terms of tariffs and trade. On another hand, um, basically like, uh, liberalization is like competition is beneficial, right? So, um, I was curious what kind of trade policy would best complement these competition policy objectives? Thanks. Um, so, let me clarify something. I didn't say go after globalization, I it's a, it's a possible explanation for rising markups. Um, whether people think that. Uh, globalization is helpful, helpful because it delivers more choice of products and at lower transaction costs. Is it might be a kind of markup like fixed cost that we don't mind. Um, so I think that's a policy issue. Uh, in terms of how to make trade policy better, I'm afraid that's outside my area of expertise. I, I in the United States, I will say we're very good at saying on uh, that. Lowering trade barriers helps the economy on average, but it harms particular workers. And we acknowledge that, and then we don't compensate the harmed workers, and then the harmed workers get upset. So that's how we do it in the United States. I don't recommend that, um, but uh, other countries do it differently, I think. Let's, two, uh, let's take two collective, three collective uh, questions, and then we'll go back. There is there a uh, question? Here, here. mentioned that in uh, Dean also that sometimes also with these potential entrances on it's very hard sometimes to really show what is going on right and uh, 
and sometimes I've been involved in cases where they didn't even know themselves really what was going on, it seems. And one way to get around that, of course, would be to introduce some presumptions and that go the other way, right? And uh, so is that something that you think uh, we could actually do? And, and as to Fiona, who is first, uh, does economics know enough to help us create some presumptions that uh, we could actually go down and defend in court, right? And I'll extend it also to, your, on your finger, first slide, you had coordinated effects. I think we are all sitting with, uh, we know there's something probably <coughs> wrong, but once you look at it and you have to say, this merger is gonna make them suddenly coordinate, that is really hard, yeah. right? And, and again, yeah. it would be nice if we could have, uh, and I know John Baker and Carl Shapiro wrote already many years ago, some suggestions about how to perhaps, based on, so, so does economic have enough uh, empirical evidence to help us argue some presumptions that would make it maybe move yes. the balance a little bit? Let's take other two questions and we okay. uh, answer. Hi, I'm Brett Haig from BBVA, Spanish Bank. Uh, and um, I've got a question concerning, following a little bit on your idea, uh, of uh, Jean Tirole uh, uh, concerning the, um, the digital platforms and uh, if uh, it might uh, be necessary to think of regulation uh, for that kind of platforms in, instead of just talking about uh, specific cases. And uh, thinking of these digital platforms uh, would it make sense to regulate them in the same sense of telecom operators uh, by, for example, um, uh, opening or forcing them to open up uh, access to their infrastructure, to their data, or uh, things like this? What do you think about uh, an ex-ante regulation approach to these competition cases. Well, not cases, but Thank you. There was another question there. Thank you. Uh, my name is Kun uh, Chief Economist, BMP Paribas Fortis. My question isn't related to competition and scale-up, uh, or markups, sorry. My question is regarding competition and enforcement of more competition in the face of more and more competition from state-owned companies like China. So what is your view on the merger between Alstom and Siemens, for example? I was expecting this question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, let's go back to the answers there. So. Uh, starting with a uh, round table from Shona and Nikolai, I owe you also some time to respond. You want me to start? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I would say, in answer to Sven, the, um, the presumptions are a really good idea, uh, and structuring them is the trick, of course. I would say, with potential competition, you probably want to start with the acquiring company. I mean, is the acquiring company facing any competition directly? Uh, and what sort of market power does the acquiring company have? And the stronger the answer to that is, it seems to me the less should be needed to prove that the small firm is in the same market or directly competing with the, with the acquiring firm. 
Um, that's a bit of a general answer, but I think there's a, a sort of a sliding scale that you could do. Oh, but I mean, you know, everybody can make those up. That's the problem. I mean, this I, I'm in industry X, the acquisition's in X prime. I can leverage X prime and put it all over my platform X. That, that you can always make that statement. And so it's just a question whether the consumer wants to have X prime on platform X or whether the consumer would be even better off by having platform X prime. Right, so, and I think if you thought that that small company was going to become platform X prime, the benefit of that is really big. So it's a question of what's the probability. Um, then coordinated effects, I think uh, we do have an issue here. Uh, we're just not dealing with this very well, and the structural presumption in the United States is a little bit designed to get after that, but um, we might need to make it a little bit stronger, uh, I think, to, to deal with the fact that we have so many more oligopolies, and this is becoming really a much more live problem all the time. Um, and then just one last comment on the Tyrol regulation. So first of all, Jean Tyrol loves regulation, and that's because he's really good at it. And uh, if he were the regulator for the digital platform world, that would be great. <laughs> I would not be worried about it at all. Um, Interoperability is another solution, and I will say that compared to, for example, the calls to break up these companies, uh, which we're hearing a little bit in the United States on the left, I think interoperability is a much better idea than that. Um, and interoperability, there's some question about whether the monopoly power has been uh, earned on the merits or not. To the less the less you think it was earned on the merits, the more the inter you know requiring interoperability makes sense. Uh, on the merits, Siemens, uh, Alstom, I I'm not really good at state-owned things. I'm okay. not going to pass on that one. No, but just maybe a quick uh, reply to the question about regulation, the role of regulation. I always say that regulation has a role when there is a market failure, a proven market failure. Giving access, we know from telecom cases, you need some standards of proof of showing essential facility. Uh, when we talk about essential facility in the data value chain, I think the data value, it identifying where we are in the data value chain is very important because giving access to raw data that can be collected from any of us is different from giving access to the data processed by some algorithms. So I'm just, um, raising awareness of some elements that we should look at. I don't favor regulation uh, just for the sake of regulation or for protecting incumbents or for... We have to identify and it's not easy. What's the problem? Yeah, so I'm going to take the China question. <coughs> uh, and Thank you. No problem. So I think this... The, Sort of, there's a little bit of noise in that discussion because you know a lot of people, you know, start to think that you know the French are trying to build an industrial champion and you know it's behind the deal and it's sort of you know trying to promote that stuff, where in fact you know you're seeing a deal between you know two large companies they want to get together and the French, the French you know do say something because they do they're French and so they say you know we should not we should let it go and and let that happen. Now it's not so much about you know creating a domestic player that's as much as it is about creating an efficient player and. The story of the EU merger regulation tells us the story about it. Now, remember, we have European constitutional law since 1957-51, but we didn't have merger control for 40 or 50 years, right? And the underlying um, reason for that is that we knew that with market integration due to the removal of 
uh, uh, trade obstacles, we needed small European firms in domestic markets to grow bigger, right, in that new European-wide market. Now, globalization, which dates back, say, I don't know, you know, carbon print date 1980, you could say, well, you know, creates a sort of same challenge for European companies this time in a much bigger aquarium. So the question is, do we want to actually let those firms, you know, merge and restructure to, you know, fight consumption from the U.S. and fight consumption from China, which is the new big player. And so if we apply the same reasoning at the reasoning which led only very late to the adoption of a merger reg, we should probably proceed on the underlying assumption that those restructuring transactions are, are you know, maybe driven by efficiency considerations, even though, of course, analysts and investors, you know, make bombastic statements when they report about efficiencies in ex-ante merger proceedings. The second thing I want to say about China is there's an idiosyncrasy when you start to think about China state-owned companies because China doesn't play by the same rules as the US and Europe. And so there's a trust problem here. Do we want to live in a world trade order with fair competition and free trade where you know that your partner is not playing the same game, right? And I think this is a sort of more moral question, but no one you know, wants to address it. I, I think there's really scope to, to you know, do something about it. So I'll take the, the, the ex-ante regulation uh, question. Uh, I think we, we should first uh, try try to do it with uh, competition law uh, because uh, these are well known, uh, the, the problems of, of ex-ante regulation that uh, once you have it in place, uh, you will not get rid of it anymore and uh, it is quite uh, yeah, it is uh, the change uh, in, in the regulatory system is also uh, uh, quite difficult. Uh, but uh, my comment earlier was more to say, uh, well, after we have tried for some time uh, over the next years, uh, maybe the result will be uh, that we, we didn't manage uh, uh, to, to get it right with competition law and then uh, maybe uh, we, we would have to do some exanter regulation, but uh, now it's too early, I think. Uh, with this, I would like to warmly uh, thank uh, the speakers for being here with us, and I invite.